You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome in to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, strange how we found this week's guest. He was uh, actually served with a previous guest of ours, and we connected via social media and uh, got to learn a little bit about his story, so excited to hear it. We'll do that coming up in a moment. Just a few words, as always. Please follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast as well. Make sure you guys uh, leave us some Apple reviews. Continue to get a, I got a great Apple review this week, guys, just saying how much people love this show. I love reading them. Uh, we'll post them back out on social, but if you give us five stars and a thumbs up and all that good stuff and tell us why you love the show on Apple reviews, it'll help grow the podcast. Speaking of thumbs up, uh, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel as well and follow and like all the content there. Please don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you right to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So great way to help out veterans charities all across America just by doing some Amazon shopping. All right, this week's guest is a former Marine, left the Marine Corps after six total years of service as a sergeant. He was a combat engineer and sapper and deployed to Iraq uh, as part of Operation Phantom Fury in the Second Battle of Fallujah in 2004, uh, and then went on to extend into 2005, supporting the first free elections in Iraq. After his military career was over, he was hired as a civilian combat instructor, um, and then went on to work for, as he does currently now, one of the largest public school divisions in the country is the supervisor of crisis management. He's also certified in school security officer training. He also founded a company named Threat Response, now changed to Lead Tactics, where he collaborates with some of the top professionals in the industry in security and crisis management within the industry. He is Jake Edwards joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jake, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited to be here. I mean, I really am. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great. I'm glad that you reached out. Uh, after Chad Russell's story about uh, the flag and the Battle of Fallujah that he had told a couple episodes back um, and, and said how much you enjoyed listening to it. And it was great that you guys ha- have a connection as you you guys were both uh, boots together in in, uh, in your first unit, right? Or in uh, basic, rather? Yeah, so we, no, we were, so I was attached to 3-1 as a, you know, as a sapper slash combat engineer. So when I was attached out to the line company, I was with his company, Lima. Ah, Okay. And uh, so we didn't know each other then. We were both boots running around separately supporting our mission. But now we're connected and, you know, he's just a great guy. He's, been, he's very involved in the veteran community. He's highly involved in just just taking care of yourself. He's got a social media page called Haze Yourself, which you just got to love that. And, you know, I saw his story and, and, you know, the story he told and the flag, Corporal Bowling having that flag, Corporal Bowling was actually the first grunt when I got to, I was actually attached to Abu Ghraib prison with Lima, 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, Lima Company. And Corporal Bowling was the first grunt that took me in as a pogue and was like, hey, what's up, man? We can hang out. We can talk smack. We can go to MWR on some of our downtime. And 
we would just play PlayStation, college football. I'd be UVA, my hometown in Charlottesville, where I'm from, and he'd be Miami, where he was from, down in Florida, and we would just talk smack. And, you know, just how combat works out, as you know, there's no names on bullets. You know, it just happens. And he was one of those that I think it was day three, the same day my squad leader got hit is when he got killed. And uh, that was a horrible day. That night was terrible, too. But we can get into that. Yeah, yeah I was going to say we'll get more into that later. Uh, but how and why did you end up in the Marine Corps? I mean, for me, for me, I'll tell you this. I had a really tough upbringing when it comes to, like, having structure and purpose as a, as a kid. And having three of my own now, that's, to me, the most important thing is we provide them with structure and something of, of self-worth at the earliest age possible. So I changed schools from my parents being, you know, divorced and with blended families. I changed schools from fifth grade to 11th grade every year. Went to a different school and in those years in succession. And so when I graduated high school, I, I hated school. And why did I hate school? I didn't know then what I do now. I hated the idea of something that gave me no structure. Um, and as in, as in, I felt, never felt structure in school. So college, I did a little community college, you know, 13th grade locally in my hometown while I worked construction. I was a laborer for Masons. My, my brother-in-law and his dad were, they're, they're Masons, bricklayers. And you're talking about work that gets you ready for the military. Dude, man, I was freaking out there working, hustling. And then, you know, those, those crazy planes hit those towers and hit the Pentagon and crashed in that field. And that changed a whole different world for all of us, a lot of us. So 9-11 definitely was uh, an awakening for me of finding something better, bigger than myself. So it took about a year and a half, but I ended up joining the Marine Corps. I, I went to MAPS and I ended up going to boot camp one month after the Iraq war started in 2003. What, what did your family say when you made the decision to, to join? <sighs> yeah, that's a tough one. So, I'll just frame it this way to share this fast. My mom absolutely is, has, she freaked out. My dad was okay with it, but my mom, her father was the youngest survivor, the youngest person on the ship, the USS Wasp, when he got shot down in the Pacific. And so he floated on a piece of wood for three days and survived. So um, she had tra trauma from that because he died when she was 14 when he was age 38. So she war for her was just, you know, something that scared her as a kid uh, from the stories about her own father. And then her brother was drafted and then decided to, to enlist before his draft number came up for Vietnam. And he was a green beret medic in Vietnam and he was shot twice and, and five helicopter crashes. So me going in, she had all this, this prior knowledge and, and concern for family service for me. So it was not received very well. Did that bother you at all? I mean, I think every young kid is, you know, do you have any kids yourself? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So every, every kid wants that, that, that separation or that umbilical cord kind of cut from their parent, even at a young age, like my nine-year-old, mm -hmm. she literally wants to be, have this freedom and uh obviously my job and my wife's job is to help protect her but 
I think every kid is like to their parents when they push back on something, they're like, you don't understand. This is me. Like get away. So it definitely bothered me, but I, at that age, I didn't understand enough about my grandfather and my uncle's combat experience. I didn't really understand it until after I went to combat myself because it was shared to me in a different way. So for me, my, my mom and uh, my stepdad actually was, he wasn't very supportive of it either at first. He's basically like Marines for real, you know, like they're in, we're at war right now. So I, I think I just realized I needed it for myself. And honestly, you could probably agree with me on this service service gives so much to an individual that they don't know in the moment until they get out possibly or years go by and they realize how much raising their hand saved them as an individual being part of that team bigger than themselves was uh was boot camp all you thought it was going to be and more were you were you i know you said you the the, the masonry work thought you had prepared you for it but did it really prepare you for it yeah i mean, I mean boot camp was it wasn't, I wasn't like, I never marched. I never did band. You know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't know like marching at all. So that was the biggest challenge for me was this frigging like, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not a great dancer. You know what I mean? So the rhythm part was, uh, and, and learn how to march. Cause that's a big thing in the Marine Corps is the parade deck stuff. That was the biggest right. challenge for me. The PT was, was just, I, I mean, I really did enjoy that. And, um, you know, I, I really had no idea what to expect to boot camp, but it definitely, I wouldn't want to do it again. But at the end of it, I was like, man, I don't want to leave. This is great. But the first phase was probably the worst. Gotcha. All right. So once you graduate boot camp, I mean, obviously you went into the service with the knowledge that you were going to be heading to war fairly quickly, right? I mean, this was, you know, a cognizant decision of this whole thing. Um, is there a point on this journey as you get there, did you ever start to question the decision you made? Some, t- well, job wise, I wanted to be an MP. I want to be an MP okay. dog handler. And when I went in, I was like, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of my hometown. I got to get, get. So the Marine Corps is definitely not like the army where they have, you know, there's so much more like the army has. The Marine Corps is very low on, on, on MOS, this is what I'll tell you as recruiters, like at the at the stations for the for the uh, certain areas, they basically were like, we have these amount of MOSs allocated per fiscal year that we can push. We've already reached that number for MOS MP for M- uh, MP MOS. So they were like, it was January. They're like, you got to wait till October for the new fiscal year if you want to try to get that MOS. And again, who knows? They friggin' tell you all kinds of stuff. And I respect recruiters, but at the same time, they also have a agenda and they also have a a number to bring in quarterly slash monthly. So I didn't want to wait. I was like, I want to go. And then here's the challenge. This is what sucked. And you know this too. Well, I don't know if you know this about the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps, you can't pick your MOS. Did you know that? Right. Your score is dictated, correct? Well, no, no. You can't pick your MOS. You pick a field. So you could pick infantry, right? O three. You could be a, an O three eleven infantryman. You could be a O three thirty one machine gunner. O three forty one a uh, mortarman, or O three fifty one, which they phase out, which is assaultman. 
So you can't pick which one you want to be. Now, engineering, 1300 field, you can't pick to be a 1371, a combat engineer. You pick the engineer field. So you could be a welder. You could be bulk fuel. You could be like these different things. And I didn't know that. And I had this recruiter tell me, he's like, hey, you don't, you didn't get MP, but, um, you know, your second pick is, is engineering. He's like, but I want you to know we sold you on combat engineer. And I don't tell the main recruiter this. He's like, but he, you can't guarantee that MOS. So you get your first two numbers, but your second two aren't guaranteed. He's like, but if you go reserve, you can guarantee your MOS because you go to an exact billet for a unit. So he's like, then you put in for active duty if you want to go active duty and then you're good from there. So that's what I did. I picked reserve combat engineer to get that exact job. And, and then this is, this is right when the IED mission was kicking off big time. You know, because before yeah. we, we were really demo guys for, well, there, and there's three sides of combat engineer. You have, you have airfield, so the air wing side, and they support more like maintenance stuff, you know, around the airfield. You have the group, which they support the uh, more like, it's like how CBs are, like building stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have the division side, which supports all the combat oriented stuff where you're attached to infantry units and you're out there doing the combat operation stuff. So I went to a, a division side unit, reserve unit. And so I got to be part of demo. You know, we have small rockets, you know, big time with, with, you know, Bangalore's C4, TNT, you know, all kinds of stuff. And then we were, had mine detectors, right? And then the new, that time is when IEDs were starting to come out. Once they were already out, but we were finally in an environment that they were a huge threat for us because all the, the munitions that were left over from, you know, years and years in the Middle East <clears throat> from different conflicts, Iraq, Iran war and the, and the, uh, the uh, desert storm. Mm-hmm. So the combination job on the division side greatly shifted at that point. And I got to my unit and I put in active duty orders immediately. And right when I put them in, our first arm was like, Hey, um, we have, we're deploying as a unit, like in just a few months. He's like, so you, your, your orders won't come in time. So you'll have to go with us. And, uh, I was like, okay, well, I guess that'll be the fastest way for me to go to combat. Right. So that's what happened, man. We rolled out, we rolled out and we got sent to California to do our, our train up. And we were out there at San Mateo where fifth Marines is and first CEB is. And that went through cyber school. And then we, my platoon got pushed out and we were put right there into karma slash Fallujah with third battalion first Marines, the balls of the core. And we were frigging, we were in it, man. We were in retrospect. Are you surprised that the unconventional path you took got you to where you were? It's just weird. Cause and what you don't know, what you don't understand at that age. And for me, I was just, I, I literally just, I love dogs so much. So I wanted to be canine dog handling. Like that was, I knew that's what I wanted. And then when that didn't happen, I was like, I still, it, and it, it's, I'm glad you asked that question because it's an example I've learned later in life. But at the time it was, I wasn't processing it. I was just living in the live moment. And but now I look back later is sometimes you just got to make a freaking call. You just got to make a call for yourself. Right. And if in your heart, subconsciously even is all it is in your heart, you're like, 
you know, I'm making this call because it's the best thing for my life in this live moment right now. And I am surprised that it got me to where I am today. But what what I am not surprised is is that it it didn't it didn't do anything to slow me down. It just made me have to be more creative and intuitive for my future that I wanted for myself. All right. So you end up in Iraq now. Um, and uh, is there any part of you that looks around and goes, how did I end up here? Like, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're sort of, uh, but in reality, again, it's kind of what you wanted, where you wanted to be. It's why you signed up, right? I mean, I was just, I was just looking to be a, be a support and go do something bigger than myself, you know? So for sure. It's, it's where, and again, it wasn't like sweet, man. I'm glad to be here. It was just, I'm here and I got a little bit of training and now I'm in the most deadly place in the world. And um, this is where it got challenging. We, so we relieved a unit, uh, another, another engineer unit that was with three, one, cause three, one fell in and we were, they were there for about a month, about a month or two. And we fell in and relieved another unit and the unit we relieved the engineer unit. They had just lost a guy, I think nine days before we got there from LPOP. They were at LPOP coming back um, and got hit with an IED. And so we came in and then we did our left seat, right seat with our unit that we replaced. And I'm a, I'm a boot, so I wasn't out there doing left seat, right seat. We were kind of just uh, doing a climate uh, acclimatization to the environment, you know, getting yuck mouth and friggin' sneezing everywhere and, you know, just getting used to the, the new environment. So our first day on mission was about a week, probably two weeks in. First day on missions as an entire platoon. And I was like, all right, here we go. So we're out. We find we uh, find some weapons in this courtyard doing some sweeps, uh, cache sweeps. And we, we, we puck, you know, place under custody, two guys. And we're on the back of our truck. They're in my truck, truck six. We're coming back to the house after that mission and we get hit with our first IED first day out there. Welcome to Iraq. <laughs> right. So vehicle four got hit. I was in vehicle six and I remember seeing, I was, you know, covering my sector. I just remember seeing it, you know, I wasn't like watching it, but I remember seeing it happen. And I was like, you know, hope, you know, take cover. And we're in high back trucks, you know, like we're very exposed. No up armor, just some of those panels those armor panels back in the, the wild, wild west days of Iraq. And we jump out. We kind of do this little hasty raid on this village that was right there just to check and, and get everybody out and, you know, just question them and say, hey, you know, was anybody here that did this, that anybody concerned about you think that did this, you know, just letting, just letting them know that, you know, we're taking it serious. And then we found some, we found some um, candy cane wire that was hard lined from a farm to the other side of the road. So we also had a UXO goal um, that didn't go off. So one, one of the rounds went off, one didn't. One of them was stuck in the middle of the road. So we, at that time, you know, called EOD, and that was like waiting half a day, <laughs> you know, back yeah. in the day for EOD. And there was no the EOD. They were a little day. slow at the outset of the war. No, and I don't yes. say that as a pejorative to them. Um, the funding wasn't there. The support wasn't there. Well, and they, they just were 
severely outnumbered. The number of IEDs that were planted versus the number of EOD units that were in country and the distance and the ground and the geography that they had to cover was insurmountable. That's true. Yeah, so the AO was, was huge. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it was It was just, you know, sure, yeah. I, I, I mean, getting from one side of Baghdad to the other could take hours, let alone, you know, uh, not being the biggest game in town with all your military Humvees and, and – uh, having to get there, and then on top of it, having to you know defuse the bomb without it going off, you know that 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 small little chestnut that you had to traverse. So yeah, um, yeah and, and, and anytime and you called the OD, you were waiting. Yeah, back then we weren't bipping, you know, like blowing place like we started doing later, because everything was a crime scene then, you know, it's and yep. it still was later, but it was just so much ordinance. <laughs> How, naive like <laughs> How naive of us. Yes, we need to search for fingerprints because we might find the person who did this. <laughs> anyway. Uh, right. Yeah, what was the, that? The uh, lessons we learned. Sexy? Sexy and Jida? Yeah. Through Jida? Yep, yeah, yeah. Um, the lessons we've learned. Anyway, uh, so uh, you get this first iteration. I mean, is, is the level of fear existent for you at this point in time? I mean, are you basically feeling, starting to feel like, okay, uh, we, we had an explosion our first day and now I'm out here searching for unexploded ordnance and trying to traverse all this stuff. Is it like overwhelming to the point of where you're sitting here thinking like, yeah, uh, I'm going to get blown up eventually. I, it, it was the first few weeks was rough. And then I don't know what happened, but I think you get to the point where, well, it can't, it came later. Definitely. Cause Within three months, we the second battle of Fallujah was starting or started. Right, I think it was within two, shoot, two and a half months maybe by the time we got there. So it came fast, but really, what happened to me was like that first day. I think was a awakening of we got lucky. No one got severely hurt because luckily the one round, only one round went off. The second one didn't go off. It just stayed in the road. We actually had to smoke somebody that day too. This guy tried to run through our cordon. We set up. So we, did, we actually had to engage and take out our first individual, too, that day. And uh, it was a vehicle that was that was coming in fast at us while we were in our cordon. So that day was gotten even crazier. When we were waiting on EOD, we had to smoke a dude trying to come through our cordon. And I think that's when I realized when we got hit with the ID, and then two hours later, we ended up, this guy's trying to run through our cordon, and we, had to, we took him out. And um, it made me realize okay, we have a team. Like, everything we deal with, there were, like, 10 of us online, and we're the ones that engage that guy in that vehicle. So we're team-oriented, and that's how we get through these deployment, this deployment. And that's how we'll survive. And, and then right after that, we had a huge – we had a little compound called the Ding. About a week and a half later, I was sitting in the chow hall. I was on QRF at the time. And it was, like, early morning, and we heard this boom. And then the, the chow hall door like opens up like slowly and shuts like from overpressure. Two, three miles away, the ding had two massive suicide vehicle born IEDs go off at the front entrance. And that was that boom and that door opening. So we got the quick call to go respond. And we were in the dump truck. Me and I was the A gunner or I was the gunner in the dump truck. I was, I was a saw gunner on that deployment. And, uh, you know, remember the dump trucks, the windows fold up? Yep. Or the, the five tons, even deuce and ass. So I'm sitting there, like, with my saw bipods out on the – kind of on the hood as the gunner informally, and we're rolling with cat team. 
and they're like off road trying to avoid like main routes and stuff going all over the place. And we show up as QRF and there's just friggin' you see like hand, a foot, like body parts. And there's this two vehicles that had just got just massive bomb they had and they just destroyed. And we show up and I'm just like, you know, this is, this is going to be a long time. This seven plus months is going to be a long time. And right after that, got attached to the prison. It was with three, one Lima down there. It's where, you know, I was around Chad and corporate bowling that you, that you had on, talked about with the flag. Mm-hmm. And that's when I kind of realized, all right, I got to enjoy this. Cause this was like a vacation being at Abu Ghraib prison. Cause we were, we were the only Marine unit on base. We lived in the back and we go out and we basically secured the, the town and make sure that we did, we did um, patrols and at nighttime we'd go out and we would just, you know, do perimeter checks and show a presence during the day out there in the t- in Nasawasalam and Kandari, the town around there. And, uh, and that was like kind of a vacation for me because it was different than what that first month was, which was chaos. And then boom, that led us right into the, Biggest battle in the entire post 11 war. We rolled out of the prison and staged and got ready for the fun times. Now, let and, me ask you, before the battle kicks off, are you hearing anything about your involvement, your guys' specific involvement in this thing? Because typically off the top of your head, I mean, you know, engineers are, are going to be in combat support, right? I mean, obviously, it's the infantry guys who are going in first and, you know, um, and all the shooters. So are you, are you getting wind of your guys' involvement in this, or has it sort of come as the battle unfolds? Well, I mean, we're – so the way the Marine Corps works, so with engineers, is, is, it's even got more so because uh, the 51s, the assault men have phased out. Mm-hmm. So engineers are even more supportive now from what I've heard. But we're, we're directly attached to weapons platoon. So we are a main element. You know, we're, we're the we're, – we're breaching. We're small gunners. We got the heavy demo. So, you know, for us, we're, we're involved in everything. So any patrol I'm on, I'm, I'm just an added friggin' person that just happens to be the friggin' local pogue, because <laughs> the grunts call you. So we, we were involved in everything. So we would get attached out to one or two man team or two man teams. Usually from us, we go out and work with and attach with each grunt grunt company. And then our main headquarter engineer unit would run and operate different missions at the battalion level. But we knew we were going to be involved heavily. And we actually did a, I, I was attached with Lima at the time, and we did a fake faint on the south side of Fallujah just to test the, the strength and the, the response to the terrorists that were in there. So I was with the grunts for that. You know, I'm just, just again, your local pogue hanging out with the grunts in the tracks, doing our fake faint, getting mortars friggin' blown all over the place by us. Um, that was friggin' wild. But yeah, we were we were very very involved, and we knew we were going to be, uh, you know, attached right there along the way for the whole thing. Does the undertaking seem like it's too much? I mean, you know, not that the Marines would ever doubt themselves per se, but are you able to understand the scope of what uh, the Second Battle of Fallujah turns into early on? I mean. We we so we only knew coming in that RAO was just under attack all the time because there was right. no there was no command control in the environment. We had the Karma, the city that was Karma's probably three to four miles from Fallujah, mm-hmm. maybe. 
um, that was our only presence we really had. Is, and that was the closest presence anyone had in Fallujah, to Fallujah, except for Camp Fallujah, which was, you know, just a fob where most people had clean camis and never went on patrol and never left that base, you know, but we were the ones outside living outside the wire. And so we, we definitely knew. And we luckily had some incredible leaders out there with us. Like I'm talking about, and I'll let now that I know and amazing leaders and the, the NCOs all the way up to senior NCOs and then the, the young officers and the, all the way, all the way up to the flag officers, amazing leaders helping us along the way. And they, they kept us, they kept us. I remember we got briefed by General Natoski and Sergeant Major Bell, who rest in peace, he passed away last year. Um, the division commander and division Sergeant Major, they briefed our entire battalion at our compound before the battle. And they basically told us, we're about to get into an ass kicking match and we're about to whoop some ass. And I remember Sergeant Major Bell, General Natoski looked over at him. He says, Sergeant Major Bell, you got anything to say? He goes, I do. He said, Marines, when I come in that city after y'all are done, I want to be jumping over dead bodies like this. And, uh, and like when, you know, when a whole battalion Marines hear that, what are they going to do? They're going to freaking scream, ah, you know? And they definitely, our leaders definitely gave us the hype that we needed for the edge. And as you know, that's really what it takes is you having the mindset that you can do the job you're tasked to do. When the battle kicks off, uh, are you sort of uh, surprised or overwhelmed by the amount of actual combat you're in at that point in time? It was, it was just absolutely – it was a friggin' – it was crazy. It, there was the processing – and it was literally living second by second. I lost 30 pounds in less than a month in that battle. And I wasn't fat. You know, I don't have a little bit of the daddy weight that I have now eating all my kids' leftovers. You know, I was like two, I was like 200, maybe 195. I left there, I lost 30 pounds because I wasn't eating. I had no hunger after all that stuff we were doing with. I was just, I just, I would hydrate. Remember those Gatorade packets? The pouches. Mm, yeah. I would that's all I would drink. And sometimes I'd have some peanut butter out of MRE. Uh but definitely You weren't eating out of fear or nerves or was I think it, it was, just you I know think it was time? Nerves. I think it was nerves. Okay. Uh time really was any time you have was like you just want to rest. Right. And well we would fight all day and go firm at night and just hold up in the last last main house, maybe on a corner that we could bring the whole the whole company in. And set up a nice overwatch and have roof, you know, roof access. Um, so we literally would fight all day. And then once it got dark, starting to get dark, we'd go firm. And we wait till it got light up again and keep going. Or What was it look, like when you started to sustain casualties? So the first day was brutal. I, was, I, wasn't, with, I wasn't with the teams when they lost. They lost three guys um, in my first platoon. And one of the squads in, in the in the first day, and so that was that was rough because the demand. What happens is you talked about like engineers being support. In theory, that's what they wanted us to be, and we kind of were that in the first the first couple of days, and then they just kept losing more people. And then the third day, my squad leader got hit with the RPG shrapnel. The right when Corporal Bowling got killed uh, on an adjacent building, Corporal Bowling got killed on the roof. 
or up, up on the top. Um, might, might not have been the roof. I think it was the roof or like a little, uh, a little balcony. And my squalor was down at the bottom and we, he got hit with RPG tribe. No one got medevaced out and he was gone. Like it was, he was gone. Didn't see him again. We got, we got sent home back to the States. At that point is kind of when my squad as engineers, we got kind of split and we were getting sent out as demo teams or small rocket teams with different squads or platoons each day. And so day three, after day three, and then day four, and then all the way up till almost three weeks in, because that was the main flight was about two and a half weeks, like legit nonstop. Um, it was after day three, it was just, you didn't know what the next minute was going to bring. Um, and I remember the first Marine I saw get killed. Oh, man, it was just brutal. We just literally, we cleared a house, we walk out. And I'm one, two guys in front of him. And he was in a, we were starting to like burn parts of the house so we could know where we had cleared up to. Cause you, I mean, you know, you being in, you talked about being in Baghdad. Um, that sometimes these houses, like they just look the same. You know what I mean? They're yeah, so, they're, they're, they're all so made we, of clay and sand. <laughs> right, right. A lot of that, you know, crappy brick. Mm-hmm. So we, we started burning parts so we could know what did we cleared up to. We were using spray paint, but I think we probably ran out or whatever happened. I don't know what happened with that. But we were starting to burn parts around the house. And one of the guys, I think he was either going back in or he was standing in the doorway. And some some freaking terrorist came in the back alleyway. And there was another door and he just sprayed some rounds. And it hit, hit our buddy. And he's hit right outside his plate and both sides and both lungs and he's just like looking at us like this you know trying to breathe and we're you know we're just trying to also kick out and get security because we just took contact and so i remember we we grabbed him and we got him down we're trying to rip his gear off to see where he's hit and and all all i remember is someone yelling security security i'm a saw gunner so i jump out and i I go prone i'm covering the, the the right side that goes back to the alleyway in the back and we get him in the track and he ends up dying on his way to, to our medical, our hasty medical facility, the train tracks. And that just sucked, man. Cause I mean, literally it's a per example of like, everybody's good until everybody ain't good. And I was right there. Those bullets could have been me. And you know what? They didn't have names on it. They could easily been me or anybody else, but it happened to be yeah. my school, Brian. And, um, just, you know, as you mentioned, like, that's when we started really taking heavy, heavy hits. And here's the challenging part. My squad leader's gone. My actual team leader, which is pretty cool. That's why I loved being in my reserve unit I had at that time. My, my team leader was a VMI student. He actually had just graduated VMI, and we had got our, our orders to deploy. And he was able to impl- uh, deploy before commissioning with his unit because it was um, – or whatever happened, he was just able to. So he was a VMI grad, just graduated that May prior. He was a pretty solid freaking dude. But now he's squad leader, and he's running a whole team of, you know, engineers on his own without his his daddy squad leader that was there. And it got challenging because we were just, again, pulled all over the place, and we had limited accountability at that point. It was just help the grunts. Because at 
at the end of this battle, you know, we walked in with over almost about a little over 60 some guys and came out with 19 walking. Um, I want to get, I want to get back to those numbers here in a moment, but I did want to ask you, cause you mentioned it at the top about corporal bowling and, and, uh, you know, you guys had a close relationship. Where were you when you found out he was killed? We had, so that night was friggin' insane, dude. My squalor got hit. We, our vehicle's down. So squalor's out, core bowling. I didn't, I didn't, all I knew was a Marine got, sh- one got hurt, one got killed. And you don't know, and you know how this is because you, you've been out there in those environments. You just, it just, like that feeling, just knowing one of your guys, it just sucks the wind out of you. Um, but you got to keep going, right? You can't stop. Better focus on what you're doing. We had amazing team leaders. Like I said, I was attached to the most amazing Marine battalion that I could ever dream to be with for this battle. They were phenomenal. Um, and of course, I'm biased. So we go back. We finally get out. And by the way, we were, we found all Zakari's compound, one of his compounds on Route Elizabeth. That's where this was. That's where this heavy fighting took place. It's right where Cobra Bowling was killed and my squad got hit. And we found that Marine that had gone UA, that, that Marine from Blue Diamond. We found okay. his camis, his cat eye, all his ID, everything in that compound. Uh, it was really weird. But Het team rolls in, exploitation. They're like, get out. And we're, we're like, we're shooting mortars on the roof, man. We ain't, we ain't leaving. They're like, get computers that, that are up here that we're taking to go investigate and get out. Load them in our truck and get out. So we start getting out. Then we find there's a huge cache in the next building over that EOD, it was getting dark. EOD prepped it, and they left because it was getting dark. So then right. we ended up having to blow it once we could get everyone out of there finally. So we had to stay for like another hour. Vehicles disabled. And you remember back in the day, none of those Home V tow hitches actually worked. They were all broken. So we're using tie-down straps to, to tow a Humvee out. And um, it was friggin' ridiculous, man. We were trying to turn it 90 degrees, and all the all our uh, the jersey racks and all our packs were getting hitting uh, the walls and other Humvees. It was passing by and just falling off, and it's dark now. And um, we uh, we finally get to our safe house. And that's when we start hearing about, you know, the guys that got hurt and killed that day. And I heard us cold bowling and, and it's like, you know, and I didn't know him for that long, but you know how this is. In those moments, in those environments, you grow bonds and literally working with someone for just a day even. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you could have had the worst day of your life with someone that you just met, but now you share that experience. But cold bowling, man, he was just, he literally was, and I love hearing uh, our company gunning at the time is now the second MEF Sergeant Major. His name is David Wilson. He was our company gunny back then. And I've had him present at some of the some of the uh, trainings that I do in the school district. He came up here and presented to us from Quantico. And when he was up here at the training command. And the way he talks about the real warrior heart isn't about rah-rah and friggin' taking out the enemy. The real warrior heart is about love for their brother and sister to their side. And that was Cobra Bowling. He literally was just a kind person. And there was nothing about him that was, that came off intimidating. He came off as supportive and, Hey, what do you need from me? I'm here to help you. 
Mm-hmm. And that was my memory of him. And just and knowing how like guys like Chad, how awesome he was for them. I didn't know that at the time because I wasn't there enough to know. I didn't have enough established relationship. But like these these are important things, man, how we leave service and we tell the story for those that aren't here because no one's here to tell their story but us. So we must tell their story. What uh, what do you carry forward the most about your relationship with corporate bowling? Because everything that – and for those who are, you know, wondering what we're talking about with Chad, Chad Russell was a previous guest on the Hazard Ground uh, and told his story. Um, you have to go back and listen to it. It's 308, I think. Just, you know, go to our website and hit the search bar, Chad Russell. You'll get his whole episode. But, you know, from everything that Chad had, had mentioned about him, um, he had an instant connection with him as well. And, um, you know, bowling seemed to be the kind of guy that everybody in the unit, everybody in the squad, you know, gravitated towards for one reason or another. It didn't have to be the squad leader. It didn't have to be the guy in charge. It didn't have to be people just gravitated towards his personality. So, you know, uh, what is it about him that you kind of still carry with you to this day? I, I think just when you go, when you meet someone new and you maybe and he was in a leadership billet and he was he was one of the team leaders. When you when you're in that position, remember influence to me is about giving someone the energy they need to fulfill their duties, giving someone the energy they need to to feel comfortable in their environment, but also know that hey, you're you're on a team now, regardless if you're in direct succession of my of my line of accountability, like you're under my team, but you have safety through me, you have support through me, and that's. And it's fun, you know, because in those environments, those corporal sergeants and those senior NCOs, they're the ones that have time under their belt. And when these boots come in and they're brand new, there's a lot of anxiety there that some gr- people are great at hiding physically. But I think all the in- good NCOs and senior NCOs know that it's still there, whether they're they're showing it or not. And I think that's really what Cobra Bowling's example in life was. He he just knew how to talk to people in such a basic way. And, you know, and we would just talk smack. I love talking smack with him because we would talk smack and I didn't even know him that well, but we could talk smack playing um, PlayStation college football. And then it was over and it was just, you know, like, Hey man, all right, let's go get some chow or let's go back, you know, and get some sleep. Um, it's just, he was just such a, such a gentle, supportive person that we need more of in this earth. Well said. Um, to go back to the numbers you mentioned before, you walked in with 60. You came out with 19 who were still walking. Uh, is there a point where you sort of recognize your own mortality and that, you know, th- there's a chance you're not coming back? Uh, it, you know, it's hard. I mean, there's so many moments that, like individual moments I can remember where I'm like, how do I not get smoked right there? Um, if you look out, there's a video called Shootout Fallujah. It's done on the History Channel. I think it's called D-Day Shootout Fallujah. There's two reenactments in there. And they're actually at the same compound. One's on one side, one's on the other. And I don't know how I didn't get smoked multiple times at that compound. Uh, I had to do shoot for me. I was covering this alleyway while one of our guys got stuck in the house. And if you lo- watch the reenactment, you'll you'll see the details. One of our guys got separated by uh, when the when these terrorists rolled out some grenades. The fire team got separated. 
and three of them got out and one guy got stuck inside the back hallway. And while we found this out, I was covering one of the alleyways in the back and, you know, I had that spidery sense about me, like, all right, something's jacked up here. Obviously I knew it was jacked up, but it was like something was extra jacked up and I'm kneeling down. And next thing I know from less than probably 30, it was probably 20 meters. I took, I was taking machine gun fire from one, one of the three windows, ground level. And the bullets were walking in on me and I don't know how the dude, I don't know how it missed me. I literally rolled to my left and one of my team leaders and other corporal on our team was in the, behind me. And I, we just all split. And it was one of the moments where I started checking myself, you know, did I get hit? And uh, right at that time we pulled back and what happened was the team leader for the guy stuck inside, they busted through the door and brought some suppression fire in and pulled him out. And once that happened is when they started hitting us on the perimeter too, that we're out there doing, um, making a perimeter for security. But, um, man, it was, that was my most memorable one of just chaotic, crazy. And there's just, there's, there's, there's so much luck to war. Randomness is probably a a better term. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, uh, luck implies unlucky. And I, I I would hate to think that, you know, there's, well, there's definitely skill. Yeah. Yes. Um, there there definitely is, but uh, you know, the, the, the randomness of combat, we talk about it all the time is, uh, is what makes it really difficult. And, and it, it provides a certain level of stress. You know, some guys are really good at, dealing with the randomness by saying I'm trained. So no matter what comes my way, I'm going to be fine. Uh, and some people may be lying to themselves in that assertion. Some people may 100% believe it, but however you cope with, uh, the situation that you're in is ultimately, you know, what decides how, how well you survive it. Um, God willing that you, that you do physically survive it. That said, you know, again, I think that there is a certain amount of, um, you know, understanding, you know, your own fate in, in combat and recognizing what it is and sort of just giving into it. Because I think the resistance to it sometimes can create more mental stress than is needed or that is there's plenty of stress already there. You don't need to add more. Yeah, it's true. So. Very true. Um, as the battle wages on here, um, do you get a sense that it's coming to an end at any point? I mean, do you feel like, my, my God, we've been here for two, three weeks now and we're still fighting in this damn city to save what, to, to, to do what, what are we accomplishing? I mean, honestly, at, at my level, because, and also losing my squad leader, who was like the guy who would debrief us at the, just for the first couple of days. Cause that's all he was there. He was literally day three, he got hit. So that really took the communication out for our team. And honestly, I was, I didn't know. I had no idea just until the day they were like, Hey, we're going to go back and meet up with our platoon and we're going to go. We had a couple other engineers that were coming in as follow on troops that had just gotten theater. And we're going to go back and meet up with them. Well, so we rolled in the battle started November 8th, the night of the 7th into the 8th. And one of the best stories I didn't tell is on the insert, we blew our vehicle's transmission and we had to, we had to offload into another vehicle in pitch black during the biggest uh, battle battle. It was frigging, it was great. It's a great Best story now. It was crazy though. It was absolutely nuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but uh, yeah. so our first meal was our first hot meal. We rolled out and 
I think Thanksgiving that year was November 25th. So from the 8th to the 25th, it was nonstop for, for me. And I know, like, commanders-wise at the higher level, they knew things were dying down. But on the street level for us, it was nonstop till that day. And we rolled back. And our first, our first hot meal, we stopped at, the, at Camp Fallujah at the five there. And Sergeant Major Kent and General Sadler were serving hot chow. And I remember we walk in with this, this most disgusting camis and just just smell like friggin' pure evil, death and nastiness. And we walk in all these friggin' clean cami folks out there with their shoulder holsters on with their pistols. And we walk in and um, we have people even call us out. And one of our um, one of our commanders or our commander or one of our senior TOs basically was like, don't say a friggin' word. We're eating chow and we're going to get out of here. Don't say a word to any of my guys. And it was so weird. We're, I remember sitting there so hungry, eating this amazing meal. And like all these people around us were just looking at us like, who are these friggin' animals? It was like dead <laughs> silent in there. People just watching us eat like friggin' like cavemen. <laughs> it was great. Oh, man. That's great. Can we, can we just talk about the shoulder holster for a second? You know, no, one, no one's ever brought it up in, in all the years I've been doing this show. Look, if you shoulder holstered your pistol, um, you had every right to be ridiculed. Like, just, <laughs> dude, honestly, honestly, like, honestly, like, you've, you've watched too many movies if you're shoulder holstering your pistol, okay? Can we, can we call it a super pogue? Yeah, that too. Um, you know, the cross draw, that, that was always the... Oh yeah, because that's what I'm going to do. Here I have it's a high port. Anyway, um, oh god, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't know why that's the first time this has ever come up on this show. No one's ever brought up the shoulder holster, but as soon as you said it, I literally just went like this. I'm like, oh my god, that's right. People shoulder holstered their weapons, and they looked absolutely yeah. ridiculous. And, and uh, remember anyway, the leather? So, they were leather too. A lot of them. Oh yeah, they absolutely were. The brown <laughs> leather, and they had the like the belt loops in the back and everything. Like, how long did it take you? Hey, can you help me out here with this thing? Can you even tighten this up a little bit? It's a Making me a little uncomfortable. That's why it's on your hip, you douche. Anyway, um, I digress. I apologize. It's just that you brought it up, and I, I just jarred so many memories of, you know, seeing that guy in the chow hall, that, you know, that major walking in there with his shoulder holster, as if to say, don't you come near me, you little peon. Um, but, yeah, anyway. All right, we digress. Thank you. Um, all right, so you get back. Now, I, I mean, is there a moment that you have while you're actually still there where you start to decompress from all this and go, holy shit, you know, and, and, and really start to, like, take in everything that you just managed to survive and then, moreover, start to take inventory of everything that you've lost? Not not while I was there because, unfortunately, okay. like I told you, 3-1 got left, lay left about a month after the battle. Mm-hmm. And so then we got three, four came in, relieved them. And we were, we thought we were going to go home with three, one. And we got, we had to stay with three, four till their engineer showed up at the end of March, almost April. So for another three months, three and a half months, we were there. And that's, that's what was tough was, you know, you build this connection with this infantry unit. And again, you're already, you're already lesser of human to them, you know, cause you're not grunts. And so you have to prove yourself even more so. And I th- we had done that and we had some great connections with them. And then this new battalion comes in and it, and then you remember this probably too, 
you said you were there 2005, 2006. Yep. Was that, remember how it yep. started? It was getting garrison at that time a little bit. Yes, very much so. more garrison. Yep. yep so that yep, 3-4 yep, yep. brought in that. They had a lot of their senior NCOs came from the recruiting field, and they brought in this garrison perspective and mindset. And, like, we were doing, like, room cleaning. Like, it was just friggin' crazy. Um, and they were actually, like, checking rooms for cleanliness. And it was – and so, for me, though, luckily for the seven-plus months I was there, I was attached to the infantry units directly as a two-man team of sapper engineers for about four and a half months of the total time. So, I spent most of my time – because I spent my last two months – with three four out there at the we call it the route henry palace in fallujah with kilo company three four and i was out there attached living with uh roommates with the the sniper team from three four kilo and we would just go out and support missions with them that was you know in there right there in fallujah because we lived in the city we lived in this little compound slash palace they called it so i um i didn't have a lot of time to really process what had been dealt with because we dealt with such a new shift to this new battalion coming in and this new demand and mission of post battle Fallujah and they what do they call it the uh, the recovery mission and this is when we started letting civilians back in you know a little prior to this and then the election came so it was really just bringing this building the city back to where giving it back to the people that once had it before the terrorists took it over in retrospect do you think that the fact that you never got a chance to decompress was more harmful or more helpful uh, to your overall mental well-being. Well, this is my mentality. Like when you're on the road, like our, like as as humans, if we drive in a car, statistically that's our most dangerous part of the day, right? So right. while I'm in while I'm in the car slash on deployment, I I don't want to I don't want to I want to focus on that environment. And get through that. And once I'm once I'm off the roadway slash home, I think that's when decompression starts. Because when you start it, and you're so because I was still I was still out in the operation every day, you know. And when you're out there in the operation, you know this. You know you're a commander, right? It's like mm-hmm. you know you know this. You you needed your guys to be crisp. You needed their mindset to be clear, and their skill set to be strong, and and competent in their skill set. So I think decompressing there is actually not the best thing for us because we need to focus on our mission and what we're doing there because we don't know what might kick off in 10 minutes and it shifts our entire operation and mission for this last two months of chilling that we've been doing. I'll I'll rephrase the question. If somebody would have said to you back then, hey, Jake, take a couple of days off, man. Just go sit down and, and, you know, unwind yourself a little bit because like you said you're on the road every day so the focus is always on the road but if somebody had said here here's a three-day break you know chill out and lay in your bunk um you you naturally would have been able to start decompressing um just because you're not doing a mission uh and yes there's opportunities mortars can land in your you know right, right in the wrong spot and everything else but um generally there's just a sense of somebody giving you a day off you're your mind sort of shuts down a little bit. Yeah. Would something like that yeah. probably have helped you. Oh yeah. So I did have that a little bit. And I think okay. living, living with the, with three, four, with less of a demand of our mission, you know, we would just, we just go out presence patrols. We would do a couple operations uh, in the peninsula, a couple of big raids, but 
but we had a lot of a lot of opportunity for like music was my way out mm-hmm. you know plugging my music and just kind of put myself in my own world of of me so i what, definitely had that, that i was had there that opportunity a moment where you said to one of your fellow squad members you know just about your hey you know i wonder where my squad leader is what you didn't mention his name so i didn't want to you know but you ever looked at i wonder how he's doing i wonder where he is you know i wonder what's going on like did those conversations ever pop up did you ever mention to one of your fellow squad members yeah you know i'm, I'm still really upset about corporal bowling or whatever it may be like any of those conversations ever take place yeah i mean well especially our like the guys that we that we lost in our internal platoon and you know guys we saw yeah definitely definitely a lot of that i just you know again and i i ask all these questions to ask or to sort of you know bring to light the point that um knowing now what what we do if we had known it back then Commanders and people like myself would have would have tried to give people more downtime to let themselves start to feel what they were feeling as opposed to compartmentalizing it, suppressing it, putting it in a box, we'll deal with it later kind of deal because later, unfortunately, manifested itself in a lot of different ways through drugs, through alcohol, through bad decisions and everything else that people had to use to cope along the way because we got so good at suppressing, we got mm-hmm. so good at not feeling these things that we became experts at it. Uh, and the, the only way we learned how to not feel was to do things that made us not feel things. And obviously we're still dealing with, with the suicide issue that the military is dealing with. So that's the only reason I'm, I'm sort of, you know, uh, circularly kind of going through all these questions. Cause I'm just kind of curious if you had felt that, you know, uh, given everything you'd went through, what your mind had to cycle through in the years post deployment, uh, if that process might've been easier, had it been started sooner around more people who understood what you were going through. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. I mean, and that's the challenge too, is, you know, you want, you want to be able to support those times to have conversations. Like when guys are having downtime, like, Hey, you're having downtime. Like, I don't need you out there trying to fill in cause this guy's sick. Like, let me figure that out as a commander. Um, it's a great, great points. You know, and I think, I think you having that perspective now is going to help like anybody you impact, whether this podcast or someone else that you, that you directly support, who's still in or still supporting operations anywhere around the world. That's the whole mentality. We we want to grow from what we did in the past, right? Can we, can we do it better? Mm -hmm. I remember I had one guy who was a gunner consistently, not in my truck, but one of the other trucks. He was the guy that I constantly had to tell him, you're not going on this one. You're staying in. You need a day off. Like, and, and some of it was, you know, I, he's the guy who wouldn't let off the damn trigger. Like when we're literally stop firing, see like stop cease fire. Like dude, just give us a second here to figure out that. And you're still pumping rounds into, you know, a random spot against the wall in a building. It's like, you know, I, I can recall seeing stuff like that happen. Uh, and, and you just look over in the middle of combat and you just see this machine go like nonstop. It's like, what is he shooting at? Like everyone else is sort of like at a, a brief second. He's the only one still firing. Anyway, I say all that because it was just like uh, there were moments that were cognizant. I, I, I remember thinking I'm kind of a little worried about where he is, you yeah. know, and he kept trying to go on more missions with other units and everything else. I'm like, dude, no, like chill. Um, and it's one of those things. And, and full disclosure, I haven't talked to him or followed up with him. I couldn't even tell you where he is right now. I don't know. Um, it's been, you know, 15 plus years, but um 
you know, there are things like that that I, I, I don't think we did enough of. There, was no, there wasn't enough. It was always, hey, man, get back in there, you know. Uh, and I'm guilty of it. I was guilty of it. I was, people told me to take a day off. I'm like, no, I'm good, you know. Let somebody else handle this one. I'm like, no, I got it. It's mine. I got it, you know. Uh, I'm guilty of it as anybody is. But I just wonder, you know, uh, if I had taken that time to decompress, if I ever would have, you know, in the moment. So, uh, you know, th- there's that. Um, when this deployment ends and you head back, uh, do you have any idea that you're sort of closer to the end of your career than not? Not at all. So I, my plan was to, I, I put in, I put a lot move request in because when I was deployed there with three, four, I got to work. Well, even three, one, two, I got to work with our exploitation team. And you talk about a very perceived fun job to have those guys had fun the human exploitation teams mm-hmm. so i tried to lab move into o2 field intel and i was on a seven month uh recruiter's assistance package um uh, maybe a little more longer than that i can't remember how long it was and i was waiting and then basically things came back like you have to redo the asvab you gotta do this because my gt was like two points below the 120 for intel which now it's like 110. So it's like, ugh. so, and at that point at that age, I think I was just, I was frustrated and overwhelmed. Cause I, I, the IED game, you know, I was helping, I was training other platoons to go back and, or go deploy. And, you know, after what we experienced, no other really sappers slash engineers had experienced that kind of stuff, except from other, other guys from the three other battalions that were there during the second battle of Fallujah. Like that was some, a severe amount of combat. Like we were, we were literally throwing Bangalores in houses. We were doing Bangalore rushes on houses and throwing them through little windows, um, throwing satchels in windows. Like, it was crazy. So, I and – and after that, training to me wasn't something I could take serious because of what I'd already experienced. So, I was, it, was, it was hard for me to take anything serious anymore to prepare. And it's like people were like, hey, we're on the demo range, and they're all excited about just blowing one, one friggin' satchel of C4. I'm like – is friggin' this is terrible. Like this excites you. So I was, and that's why I started riding motorcycles. And, and, um, I just, I got, I fell in love with this adrenaline and I wasn't getting it from the, from, I was, the lab move wasn't going to work and I wasn't getting it from the military. So I was just trying to suppress it from riding motorcycles and just hanging out with my uncle who was that green Bay medic. Cause Post-combat, he became my my safety net for all my psychological concerns I had subconsciously. When he was my you, he was my help. When are you able to recognize that, hey, something upstairs ain't clicking the way it's supposed to? Uh, I think it was just it was it, it was hard for me to find something that made me feel content and happy in life. Like the only thing I felt happy doing was being on my friggin' motorcycle, like my sport bike. That was it. It's the only thing that I, that I cared about. Of course, love my family. You know, I, like I didn't have any a wife or kids in, but I had dogs, love my dogs and friggin' my, my motorcycle. And that was it. And so what I did is I, I also was like, all right, let me use my GI bill now and start, you know, I, again, I hated school. School was never been my thing. But I started going to school because I was like, all right, I want to just 
work towards something. And I was doing that and working, went back to do, doing some construction work. And I was in the Marine Reserves at the reserve unit, uh, the, the, the common engineer unit. And I, I just, I literally gave up because I tried to, you know, the lab move just collapsed me, just shut me down when they, when they declined that and they wanted me to do everything all over again. And, um, and I, I wasn't, I think I was so, I was, I, I was so over, I was so over having to put a lot of effort in anything in life. I think it was like mm-hmm. everything I wanted to do the minimum amount of effort possible. What were some of the conversations you would have with your uncle? I mean, we would just, honestly, he, I think he knew because, you know, him prior being 1970, being in Vietnam the whole year and his, his experience being shot and, and a lot of helicopter crashes and, and being a Greenberry medic, all the nastiness that he saw. I think he knew, he knew what I was experiencing from his, his own self. And he, I think he saw a chance in helping me avoid what, what he came home to deal with himself. Cause when he came home, he had zero support. He was treated like crap. He was, you know, right. he was like a, he was like a second class citizen to certain American people in our environment. And I think he was just trying to help me find some structure and purpose. And I mean, some of the conversations we would have, we, we would just ride motorcycles and just laugh about the immediate moment of me almost flying off a cliff. Cause my, uh, I hit a loose piece of pavement and I'm like, my bike rear tire started shaking and I literally caught some, I got my brake working right before I fell over this massive cliff. Cause we, I grew up in the mountains of Virginia. So we'd ride the mountains. Um, him, he flew off the road and flew into a rose bush, you know, like who would just like stupid stuff like that. We would just crack up and that would make our whole day. Like just the dumb stuff we would do on our motorcycles. Um, you know, we just, he, I think he knew that my, my, that my, what I experienced, cause I didn't share anything with anybody. And here, let me add this part. So one thing, I don't know if, if Chad talked about it. it there was an author embedded with third battalion, first Marines, actually Lima company, first platoon during the second battle of Fallujah. And I'll put a plug out there for this book. Uh, this author named Patrick O'Donnell. And he's a civilian, came out, I don't know who put him through his weapons qualification and put him through his pre-deployment, whatever, but he had a rifle, he had a kit, and he had friggin' Marine Corps digicamis on, and he was out there literally attached to us. And he looked like a salty first sergeant when I first saw him. And he came in about a week into the battle. And the only reason I knew something was jacked up, because he was carrying his rifle by the carrying handle. And I was like friggin' who the heck is this guy, you know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Dead giveaway. right. Right. So I don't know if Chad talked about this at all, but, um, he, uh, he wrote this amazing book called we were one. And I remember he, he had this little recorder and he'd go around and like ask us questions. And I didn't know the guy and you know, this, what did you tell your guys to do if they don't know who media is or what they're trying to get out of you? Don't say That's anything. Anything. Right. So he asked me a question once and I was like, I don't freaking know you, dude. I ain't saying nothing. And uh, it's not, that was like my nice way of what I said. But um, he wrote this amazing book called We Were One. And th- that book is where they did the reenactment part of it off of 
for the D-Day shootout Fallujah. And, you know, there's a, there's a part of that book where it shows the engineers and talks about how we basically, we became one of the force multipliers on the battlefield because of the demo that we brought to the environment. And it was, uh, it was just very special to, once that book came out, I remember it came out, uh, I think it was, might've been 2006, I think. And I remember when it came out, I didn't know it came out. The, the reenactment to the shootout Fallujah came out first. I remember I was just flipping through the channel and I saw it come on history channel. I was like, Oh, let me, let me check this out. And I saw the platoon, one of the sergeants I was attached to at the prison. And then also part of the battle, the one that was there that day, that, that crazy day where my buddy Hanks got killed. And then, and the guy I was telling you about, I got stuck in the house on the other side. That was a horrible day. That guy, that squad there got shot in the arm um, at that same compound. And uh, he was in the reenactment. Uh, the commander we were attached to was in the reenactment. And the author was in it. And who else was in it? I think, I think one, other, one other guy. But anyway, I'm sitting there watching like, what in the world? And I had no idea this was out. No clue. And that's when I realized that the book had come out too. And I got the book and I read, literally read it straight through. I, I think I read it in like four hours. Like throughout, then I didn't go to sleep. I read it from like twelve to four a.m. and that's when a lot of my problems really started. Because I I started, I lived, I literally lived what I experienced through a book now, and I was and it was told absolutely perfectly. It was like exactly what I saw because he literally was attached to our platoon. He was in the, he would be there with us trailing along the whole way through. And I think for us specifically that we're in that unit, that book, we relive everything. And that can be the best gift once you, once the pain of accepting it all is something that you experience and go through. I had to accept, and I think you can relate to this my healing process and, and processing process for all that stuff in that, in that, in that moment that I experienced during that, that time, that deployment, it was a lot of trauma, man. It was a lot, was a lot of not knowing what today's going to bring or tomorrow's going to bring. Cause I don't know who's going to be here tomorrow. Cause every day we're losing more guys, mm-hmm. but it, it may, it really let me have something to not just live of what I experienced myself, it had a, it was a formal piece of doctrine that I could take, read and say, other people were there and experienced this too. And I don't need to hang my hat on anything negative. I don't need to let this own me. I can accept this stuff and, and move on because it doesn't have to control me because I had that way of seeing it. I'm like, Hey, someone else told the story. It's like, it's not just my story. Amazing stuff, uh, honestly, and thank you for for sharing. You know, I mean, it's a it's it's never easy, sort of, to go to go back through these details uh, over and over again. But uh, I'm glad that you do, and I'm glad that you're in a place right now where you at least understand what to do with all these feelings uh, and and when they come about, how to how to go about handling them. Um, you know, it's uh, 
what you went through was was unlike uh, many experiences that any of us have had. I'm not saying it's better, worse, different. It's just unique in and of its own based off of what it was. Um, and uh, I think there was a Marine quoted as saying that if Fallujah isn't hell, it's in the same zip code. So, um, you know, that, that, that kind of just describes aptly what you guys had gone through. Um, but again, kudos to you and, and uh, you know, your uncle for being able for you guys to work through this stuff and, and get to a place hopefully of, of a little bit more peace now than uh, maybe you had before. And, and hopefully each day that goes by, you're, you're, you get more at peace than where you were. Um, because this whole thing is a journey. It's never a destination. And, uh, you know, you'll live with it for the rest of your life. Um, it's just a question of how well you manage it and how successfully you can you can function with it. Um, and I think that's that's the one understanding um, that, that until I opened my own Pandora's box, I never really got a concept of, of the idea that you'll, you'll live with it for the rest of your life. It's how you manage it from day to day that separates, you know, you from – the suicide folks or the people who drink too much or find other outlets and everything else. It's just a, like any other sort of disease, alcoholism, drug addiction, gambling addiction, whatever it may be, how you, how you manage it, but it's just part of who you are and it doesn't go away. So um, credit to you for, for being able to, to get to this point with the whole thing. Um, when you transition thank, thank you. out of the Marine Corps uh, and active duty, absolutely. When you transition off active duty, you end up going back to the reserves for a couple of years, but do you know what you want to do? With the rest of your life? Yeah, so I wanted to – I was trying to get into uh, DIA. That was my main goal. That's why I never got tattoos either. <laughs> and, um, and, then, and then what happened was I, was I was in school and I was working on my business degree and just, just push into – you know, my, my vision was – I knew what my vision was. I wanted to get into, like, government work somehow. And what I really want to do is do it outside of, outside of uniform because I was like, all right, I want to, I want to just take this where I can, I don't know. Like I just wanted to have a different, a different element of government work where it was like more civilian based. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so I just made it a goal. I was like, Hey, I want to be something. And literally, Someone, I'd meet someone and, and they'd say, hey, you know, what are you doing like now? I'm, I'm in school. I work, you know, part-time in these jobs. Well, this is what I want to do long-term. And I just stuck to that vision. And I'm, this is where it's so important where I challenge people to find something that can give them energy to focus on and try to, try to get in life for later. Like, hey, I can't, I'm not there right now. Like, I'm not there yet, but I, want, I know this is what I want down my timeline. And how do I get there? Well, you get there from each day. It's like working out. How do you get, how do you get stronger? How do you get a higher bench, you know, for your max? You, every day you got to push yourself and have a goal for that. Like almost living it in reverse. Like once I, I want to get here, right? So that's my story at the end. I'm going to get here. But now I got to figure out the way to get there. So I made this goal and I stuck to it. And it took me two years took me two shit almost three years and what happened was i had i put my resume on monster and monster remember monster it legit it wasn't the drink there was a friggin' platform a website called right. monster monster.com yeah and <laughs> it was a job app you know job search website so my friggin' pogue job i had as combat engineer 
it got highlighted and this recruiter called me and they're like, Hey, we're trying to find route clearance guys that can teach combat operation skills for fo- folks deploying all around the world. Would you be interested? And I'll, and that, cause that's what I was looking for a training or development job, um, some kind of go- government organization. And so while I was in school, didn't have a clearance. I never got a clearance in the Marine Corps either. Never had a degree. This company calls me. They're like, Hey, we require a degree and a clearance. And I was like, well, I don't have that. They're like, but you have exactly what we need, which is combat engineer. And I was like, who the freaking, who's trying to build a bridge, bro? Like, that's what combat engineers are known as doing. But they, uh, I'm on there, talked about route clearance. So they interviewed me and they hired me. And I moved up to New Jersey right there, Joint Base, McGuire, Dix, Lakehurst. And I worked Uh, there for for six years, running all those ranges out there. I worked on two different contracts. The first one was for Expeditionary Center. And the second one, we were, I worked for the air advisor contract, teaching folks that deployed armed and unarmed all around the world. There's a chance that I probably crossed paths with you in 2011 because that's where I deployed out of. My second one was Joint Base mcguire Dicks. Yeah. So there's a small chance I might have crossed paths with you at some point so, in time. So do you remember, do you remember, the, uh, that, that com- do you remember that expeditionary center where the flags were? They had like three U.S. Mm-hmm. Flag, big flags. Yeah. Did you, did you train – did you train out of there at all when you were there? Oh, God, I don't or were you we there for the army solely? I don't think so. We had to tra- That's where we did all of our train up for, you know, uh, going back to Iraq for the closeout. So we did like, we went to the Mount site and, uh, yeah. Yep. Um, range 59 you know, echo. Yeah. Yeah. That nice range training. Yeah. Yep. We did all the training there. And so, you know, um, it was about 30 days, but we got out of there fairly quickly, but, uh, yeah, de- de- deploying at a joint base, McGuire Dix was a was a pure joy, to say the least. They had some good, they had some pretty good ranges out there. They had some good driving do. ranges too. Listen, it's it's uh it, the whole post has now been beefed up too since we started doing these uh, combo Air Force Army posts. You know, Brack yep. uh, did, did yep. a wonderful did a wonderful job of putting people out of work. Uh, anyway, but um, nonetheless, uh, you <laughs> a little little shot there never hurts. Anyway, um, so you, you move on from this job, but you end up getting right now to the job that you're in now as working for one of the largest public school divisions in the country as the supervisor of crisis management. Now, that, that title seems sort of nebulous, but, um, you know, why don't you kind of tell me how that you end up going from teaching combat skills to public schools? So great, great question. So my mom's a retired kindergarten teacher. Ah. And so, so when I became a combat skills instructor, it was focused on route clearance, urban ops, you know, I had a lot of urban, urban operation experience. And so I, you remember this, the green on blue threat started coming out, right? Mm-hmm. So host nation versus NATO, you know, us and our support. So when that happened, a lot of our military was like, look, we got to put out programs like a formal training. It can't just be a theory based presentation PowerPoint. We got to have some practical application training for these folks deploying. So they came to our team and I just got, I just got assigned to our, become our assistant chief instructor. So I, I was, I was just, just 30 years old, assigned our second to charge billet for the training. And I was, dude, I mean, I was managing guys 20 years older than me, you know, and really not managing them. My job was to help support them for us training, right? So I was never one of those, like, you know, I'm in charge of you type thing. I was all about, hey, let me know how I can support you. Our job is to help train and develop people. 
That's it. That's all I'm here for. You know, let me know what you need and I'm going to help you get there. I don't know everything, but I know I care. I care about you and the team. So I was tasked with this massive, you know, deputy chief instructor position. And then I was also assigned to run our active shooter insider threat program. So they gave me, and I was out there for dicks. They gave me the chance. I used 59 echo as my primary range. And I got to literally build a four hour. We would sometimes use their training facility out there and do the classroom portion two hours. And then I did a two hour practical portion, which we got to build on our own. Like we literally, no one else was doing it. We built this two hour practical program and it became the model that's still being used. And we literally would break groups up into small teams and we would set them up in their environments in like a, a room, a hallway outside and, and teach them because some of our students were going to Africa unarmed. So tactics change, but the concept of dealing with the active shooter insider threat doesn't change. The outcome you want for for all of them, if you're armed or unarmed, is you want to survive. So we literally had the chance to, to develop and use the, these awesome ranges out there, this awesome program. And what it led me to the, the unit I was with at that time had, before I got there, 2011, you might remember this, those 11 Air Force folks that were killed in Afghanistan. I'm sorry, nine, excuse me, it was nine Air Force folks that were killed, advisors that were killed in Afghanistan from that one Afghan colonel and that insider threat. He shot all nine of them. Those were students that came to the training that I was now part of before I got there. They had went to that training. And so the pressure was on us to say, and you know, when nine people get killed from one attack, they go back and say, who the frick train these people? Right. Mm-hmm. Cause they were all armed and they were, they were killed. So we had to really revamp and, and change our training tactics for the firearms part, but also the active shooter part really got pushed and we were given the green light to just go and do whatever we needed. And we had an amazing commander at the time who gave us, you know, anything we needed, gave us the resources and the, the space to find and, and, and really develop the best training curriculum out there. So that's what led me later. Once I was doing that, more school attacks were happening in the U S Sandy hook had just happened. And uh, I don't know if you remember the term run, hide fight that's used in the U S we were using the term escape barricade fight. And this is before run, hide fight came out, but run, hide fight came out when DHS did that video with the city of Houston in 2013. And they came out with the concept of run, hide fight in that five minute video that you now see, but we were doing this before that. And so I'm really on the, on the front end of really helping unarmed people deal with active violence situations in an imperfect environment. And so obviously you and I being in many gunfights ourselves, we both know that what do you want in a gunfight? Well, you want more good guns than bad guns. Fire superiority. (laughs) Yeah. You want force multipliers, right? So when you don't have, when it's a one-way gunfight and someone has a gun and we don't, i.e. our schools, you know, our, our job is to, we know how QRF works, right? So like, I literally just took all my skills and I saw all these attacks happening in the schools in America and they're not, they do happen, but they're highlighted more because of the environment that they're in. So I literally just said, look, 
the government, the OCO funds, you know this, OCONUS funds were drying up. In 2016, the contract I was on was you're going through a recompete and a rebid. And it was just a good time for me to transition. And I found this job here. And now I've, I've worked as as one position as a security training specialist. Then I was the administrative coordinator of crisis management. And now I'm the supervisor of crisis management. So I've moved in three different billets in my seven years being here in the school district. And I really have learned. I know how to speak the dialect of schools now. And my mission now with my company is to literally go into all directions, whether it's K through 12 schools, higher education with colleges and universities, but businesses and just the adult side is where I started as a formal instructor. Right. But now, now the kid side, dude, I, I I literally, I'll train a thousand kids at a time in one day. That's amazing. Um, And these kids love it because our states mandate these drills. And I'll, mm-hmm. well, first question I'll start with is, you know, we have 43 states that required crisis drills as of this year in our country. And so my question to anyone is, if our states require it, why don't our kids have the best training possible? 100%. Yeah. I mean, and, and trained by the best. The right. Reason. So that's where my company comes in. And we do this. And, and uh, but I can do it for the government side. And then I get to help kind of operational operationally put other instructors on my team for my company out there doing stuff to make an entire country impact instead of this small district I work for or this large district, actually, or one of the largest in the country. But um, you you had mentioned that you started your own company, which was threat response now lead tactics. And and, uh, uh, you basically, you know, have taken this this very important subset of training and sort of made it your own now uh, working individually so tell me more about the startup of the company and where you guys are going now and where you're headed yeah so I, so threat response was really to create the the you know exactly what we're dealing with you know the right. names and in the action of the, of the company but then i i realized you know what about if i want to do leadership development because you know this really what our best skills are from folks that come from combat environments uh, heavy combat environments is we learn we learn amazing challenging skills of leadership on our feet and we're very good operationally and if we aren't good operationally then we know other people that are and we collaborate so we know that team collaboration is the best way of leadership in action you bring people together you support the operation through a team mentality so so i came up with the term lead as an acronym and an action word so it covers two things it covers leadership development training but it also covers the acronym of lock, escape, alert, defend. So it stands for the action of multidimensional response options for an active shooter situation. Hey, lock, lock, lock with layers of protection, right? If you can't barricade, and it's not scary to barricade, especially with kids, because all you got to do is ask the kids, raise your hand if you, you have any more, if you have more than one door lock on any doors of your house. And if they do, you just say, hey, all that is is another layer of protection, just like this barricade. So there's, I figured out easy ways to articulate things to kids and staff members in schools that don't scare them. Uh, escape. Look, if someone's got a gun and you don't, one of the best things you can do is get as far away as possible from that threat. Escaping could be out of windows, out of doorways, out of creative, creative places, but escaping and getting on your horse and riding off in the sunset. And if you got to hide, I tell my kid this, 
you know, if you got to hide in in, it, in the friggin' trees or in a bush for hours, I'd rather you have ticks and maybe some, you know, snakes around you and such that, you know what, when I find you in three hours, you might have those things on you, but luckily you're away from that, that threat that had that firearm, those guns or those weapons or knives, whatever it is you got, yep. you, you, you know, got off the X. And then the alert part is like you and I both know this on the three dimensional, three dimensional warfare. I might have a line of sight in my sector that you can't see around and, and I can see and identify that, that threat, but I can yell out to you. Hey man, let's go this way. Let's go this way. Come to me. So the alert part is line of sight communication in a school or a building or wherever you are outside, but it's also using radios, using anything with an application on your phone. So the alert part is very important. And we also want to notify QRF, AKA the police, the good folks with guns to get here as fast as possible to make this a two-way gunfight. And then we have the defend part where everyone in our country has a right of self-defense. Now, being able to articulate your reasoning and judgment will come in later. But I always tell folks first, you got to survive first to be able to articulate later. And defending yourself is something, it's not a fight. And this is why run, hide, fight for kids. That term just doesn't fit well because we always already tell kids don't fight in schools. So it's really, they have a right of self-defense. And I sell it that way with a lead as in lock, escape, alert, defend. And this is going really well, man. It, it, it took me a while to get it going. You know, I, I was building the ship while I was in the ocean. And now I got instructors on my team. Uh, we do, we just did some training in, in New York City again this year with the community center. And they friggin' we do a two-day training. We'll come out and do the, the theory part of like a presentation, a little bit of a PowerPoint. You know, not a lot of slides. I hate slides, like especially with a lot of words. Um and then from there, we uh, we go out day two, and we work on uh, we work on the ap- application skills of it inside the environment. That's amazing. Again, traintactics.com is where you guys can go to get more information. And I assume that anybody you know, uh, any parent or whatever wants to bring this to their school district, that's totally fine. And then you could you could teach it anywhere, correct? Yep, we got insurance. Okay. We're good to go. We um, <laughs> we got instructors on our team. We keep growing. We're doing a good job. And, and the important part, too, is with businesses. And, right. and you know, a lot, of, a lot of businesses require training for their staff, but a lot of them do it through a video. So they, didn't have, they have the concept right. and the theory behind it. But our company, we come in, and I learned this from the same range you know, 59 Echo. The application part, if you don't meet mindset, which is, you know, the theory behind it, and then the skill set, the application part, if you don't meet those two together, we're not really given the outcome we need for these moments for our folks. Yeah. We got to give them the challenges and, through application. And again, it's it's one of the, you know, most important causes that you're, you're working with right now in our country. Um, you know, w- political arguments aside about why this is happening and everything else. The bottom line is, is that it does happen and there needs to be some level of preventative prevention taken internally uh, and training taken internally to minimize the damage when it does happen. Um, That's it. You said it perfect. You said that perfect. It's it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when, and uh, you're doing your, your, your community a disservice if you haven't at least given um, people at all levels of schools, the, the tools to, 
minimize damage and survive. Um, and that, that's sadly the world we live in, but it is. I'm going to add one challenge to everyone out there listening. If you have a, a child in K through 12, if you have a friend that works as a teacher, anyone you know who works in the school environment, this is the one way that you figure everything you just said is, is tied into this one, these one questions. You ask them what drills they train. So do our, so if you're talking to a kid, Hey, what drills do you train at school? Let's say I'm a kid. Uh, we do fire drills, we do tornado drills, and we do the active violent drills, you know. Okay, so this is the one way to find out why this training is so important is you ask the kids, raise your hand on which drill concerns you the most and why we train for it. And they always raise their hand to the active violent ones. And the reason why this is important is because if we don't start with where their concerns are, then we're not even getting anywhere with these kids. Right. And it's like you, when you're going through combat and you're training up a new unit, a new team, if you don't look at your, you look at your team and realize, Hey, are we operationally ready? Am I even dealing with the, the, the mental concerns that they're bringing to work each day right now as we prepare for combat and our train up, or are we just getting through the rotations and the rhythm of it? And, and we're not really diving deep into our mindset. You know, you know, you need strong people that can make solid decisions with commander's intent, but not always with commander's presence. Right. Very well said. Look, again, I, I can't thank you enough for doing what you're doing now. <laughs> it's one of these true stories where so many veterans are doing so many greater things post-military career um, than the great things they did in uniform, and, and you're certainly an example of that. Again, traintactics.com is the website. Go check it out. You, you've done a, a whole bunch of media on everything that you're doing across the country. And I think it's, it's incredible. Uh, and, and I hope uh, obviously there's continued success and, and we're, we're all getting more and more of this going forward. But uh, you know, your story is, is, is also great. I'm glad that we got this connection between Chad Russell and corporal bowling, may he rest in peace and, and yourself. And, you know, all of that kind of just ties us all together in, in one you know, big way that keeps us all a little bit stronger in the end. So I'm glad we were able to connect brother. Uh, thanks, brother. I appreciate your time, man, and I love what you're doing. I'm gonna I'm gonna hook you up, my buddy Phil Briggs, who does CBS uh, Eye on Veterans. Uh, he had me on there twice last year, and um, I'm gonna get you on there with his show, so we can get you some promotion oh, out there too. Listen, hey, we we we, we would love it, but uh, thank you very much. It's very very generous of you, but. Again, uh, thanks for sharing your story, man. Let's stay in touch. You know, you and I uh, got, got to keep, uh, you know, keep, keep the keep the good fight going together. So let's let, let's stay connected. And I can't appreciate, I can't thank you enough for your time. I appreciate you doing everything, and, and most importantly, Jake Edwards. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Yes, sir. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show. Send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.